This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin 8th graders are smarter than the national average, at least according to national test scores. Students in 8th grade averaged 8 points higher in math scores than the national average. Meanwhile, in reading, they averaged 3 points higher. That seems to be the only good news for Wisconsin from the latest National Assessment of Educational Progress, which measures reading and math proficiency among middle schoolers across the nation. The report released yesterday was the first version to have testing after COVID-19 moved a lot of teaching out of the classrooms, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. And here's what's not good. Under the report, Wisconsin has the widest disparity of any state between black and white students. White fourth graders scored 24% higher in math and 22% higher in reading than their black classmates. In a statement on the release of the scorecard, Superintendent of Schools Jill Underly said, quote, We've known Wisconsin's racial disparities in assessments results are among the widest in the nation for too long. And these troubling results are yet one more indication that we must close the opportunity gap in our state, unquote. Meanwhile, educators rallied outside the state capitol building last night, expressing their concerns with a lack of increased education funding. This event highlighted the dozens of referendums coming up on the November ballot aimed at funding schools, reports WISC-TV. Attendees focused the blame squarely on the state legislature for freezing revenue limits and limiting funding for public education. Eight school districts in Dane County are asking voters this election to approve more funding, including recurring operating referendums and one-time projects, reports the Capital Times. Dane County districts asking for more funding include Verona, Wanakee, Milton Cross Plains, Mount Horeb, Oregon, Stoughton, Sun Prairie, and Belleville. The Dane County Sheriff's Office is opening the county jail to public tours. The move comes as county leadership continues to debate the next steps in the Dane County Jail Consolidation Project. The jail was built above the city-county building in downtown Madison in the 1950s and has been called inhumane and unsafe, even borderline unconstitutional, by Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett. As many Dane County residents have never gone inside the jail themselves, the sheriff's office is now holding public tours on Tuesday afternoons and Saturday mornings. The tours last around an hour. More information on the public tours of the jail is available on the Dane County Sheriff's Office official Facebook page. With the November 2022 election just two weeks away, today marked the first day of early in-person voting in Wisconsin. There are plenty of locations around the city to cast your ballot. A reminder that early voting works the same as voting on election day. You will still need an acceptable photo ID and you can register when you go in to vote. Additionally, if you requested an absentee ballot by mail, you can turn it in at an early in-person voting site. A full list of early in-voting in-person voting locations is located on the city's website at cityofmadison.com slash clerk. Senator Elizabeth Warren is headed to the UW-Madison campus tomorrow afternoon as part of an early voting rally. Senator Warren will be joined by Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin and Congressman Mark Pocan, along with state Democrats. Their rally will be held at the Humanities Building from 3.30 to 5 p.m. And now on to today's top stories. There are a few iconic images that might come to mind when you think about voting, a ballot tabulator machine or an I voted sticker among them. Here in Madison, big blue signs proclaiming vote with an arrow have adorned the outside of polling places and early voting locations for years. 
but the placement of those signs is now at issue as the city maneuvers its own restrictive sign ordinances. WORT producer Nate Wagehout has more. The city of Madison is cracking down on itself. WORT spoke with multiple sources today who described evolving conversations regarding the placement of blue vote signs used to signify early voting, which officially opened today at locations across Madison. At issue, exactly where those signs can be placed under Madison's restrictive sign ordinance, which bans the placement of signs on any public right-of-ways. Those right-of-ways include sidewalks and roadways, but also include medians and terraces, or the grassy area between the sidewalk and the road. Polling places are still able to put the signs out, says Matt Tucker, director of the city's building inspection division. But now, those blue vote signs will only be allowed on private property or off of the public right-of-way. That's the normal sign that we've seen for decades for elections. Polling place, blue vote signs... Those signs are allowed. They were allowed before. They're, they're allowed now. There's uh, A polling place can have ample signage to identify itself. The issue that we would just want to clarify is that, like any sign, uh, it needs to be placed on the private property and not within the city's public right-of-way. According to the city's lengthy sign ordinance, signs are not approved to be placed in the right-of-way unless they are traffic control devices set up by the Department of Transportation or a sign placed during an event, such as a parade. But this clarification has caused some confusion among polling places here in Madison, with some either not knowing where to place the signs or if they even can place signs. Tucker says that he isn't sure how the miscommunication happened. We have had some inquiries about what's legal, just so there was an understanding, which prompted us to uh, prepare uh, some instruction on legality for signs. So it was clear. The point was for folks to understand what signage is permissible. But why now and not during previous elections? City Attorney Mike Haas says that as in-person absentee voting becomes more popular, more and more early voting locations are set up around Madison and for longer periods of time. As to why they enforce the rule at all, Haas says that it's just about being fair. The legal answer is because our our ordinance prohibits any signs in the public right-of-ways. So, you know, and that includes like median strips and you know, when we when the city building inspection division sees signs in the median strips or the public right-of-way, those are removed. And so that's the rule for everybody else, and the city is simply complying with its own rules that the uh, council has put in place. Uh, It's meant to make sure that we're not interfering with the public right-of-way and that we are not really taking up public right-of-way space with uh, signage. Haas says that only a small number of polling places around the city have no room to place signs on private property. Those locations will be handled on an individual basis by the city clerk's office, who did not respond to WORT's request for comment on the signs by airtime. If you can't find an early in-person polling location without that big blue sign, a full list of early voting times and locations is available on the City of Madison Clerk's Office website. As of 2.15 this afternoon, more than a 1,000 City of Madison voters had cast an absentee ballot in person. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. In August, the Dane County Board hired an investigator to review workplace culture at the Henry Vilas Zoo. That move followed reporting that detailed allegations of mistreatment of animals and discrimination against staff at the zoo. 
After several months, the results of that investigation have been released. The finding? No outright discrimination or a hostile work environment, but there is some room for improvement. WRT reporter Abigail Levins has the story. The report was put together following an investigation by Valerie Bailey-Reen, who was until recently a Dane County judge. In her investigation, Bailey-Reen reviewed zoo files, emails, and records. She interviewed dozens of past and current volunteers and staff, observed the ongoing operations at the zoo for 10 days, and observed the grounds, concessions, and gift shop. She met with individuals not directly associated with the zoo, including veterinarians and investigative staff at the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. The 51-page report finds no evidence for allegations of racial discrimination, unequal discipline based on a protected category, and retaliation for union activity, which have been alleged by previous news reports. At least, it finds no evidence for meeting the legal standards for discrimination, unequal discipline, or retaliation. And it finds past issues of managing animal welfare are being currently resolved. But it does identify some areas of concern related to proper management. The report finds that some current or future employees who were interviewed and surveyed did not feel like all employees were treated fairly, particularly in their work assignments and level of discipline. According to the report, Four individuals, out of 47 respondents to a confidential survey, reported observing racially motivated harassment, bullying, or discrimination. 17 employees, or more than a third of the survey's respondents, found that they had personally experienced harassment, bullying, or discrimination. For example, one former employee described refusing to attend a zoo potluck celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where employees were instructed to bring a dish starting with the letter M, L, or K. In another instance, a manager referred to Asian-style cuisine using an epithet. Additionally, the report found that there have been instances of communication difficulties and fair standards at the zoo, and attributes that to near doubling of its staff during the pandemic. To remedy some of these issues are 10 recommendations for change, including a reorganization of the zoo's structure, improving communication between zoo employees, better outlining employee roles, and providing those employees with opportunities for growth and adding more security to the zoo. Bailey Reen also investigated another prong of recent allegations, animal welfare. The report finds limited evidence of past animal neglect or mistreatment, acknowledging various incidents in past years that have involved accidental deaths of a wild raccoon, several penguins, a hornbill, and a capybara. The report mostly stops short of offering recommendations related to animal welfare, deferring to an ongoing investigation from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums but does suggest animal welfare issues are largely the product of administrative structure. It also suggests addressing the condition of some animals' winter homes soon, before another scheduled inspection next year, and an expansion of the zoo's contract with the UW School of Veterinary Medicine for animal welfare concerns. The report heads to the Dane County Board and will be taken up mid-November. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
The city of Madison could see as many as 70,000 new residents move in within the next 20 years. All of those new people are going to need housing, adding on to a steadily growing housing crisis facing the region. Last night, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway joined District 11 Alder Bill Tischler for a town hall meeting, talking with residents about their hopes and concerns about housing in the Madison area. Tischler sat down with WRT producer Nate Buggyhout earlier today to break down last night's meeting. So just to sort of start things off here, uh, there's a town hall held last night about uh, housing here in Madison and sort of in your district, District 11 there. So just to uh, sort of start things off, can you just give us a little bit of uh, background? Why, Why did you hold this town hall last night? What were some of the topics that were discussed at last night's town hall meeting? Yeah, I started as Alder uh, about about five months ago, and one of the things I wanted to do was was find a way to to connect with uh, with residents, and uh, so I began doing monthly town hall meetings at the Sequoia Library, which is in in uh, in the district, um, and doing doing face to face, and just as a way to uh, to kind of bring people together and to connect. Um, the uh, the topic of of housing. Uh, has been a uh, you know has been an, an issue that that many people have have wanted to address. Um, our previous town hall meetings, we concentrated mainly on uh, streets, making our streets streets safer. Ideas to uh, create more uh, pedestrian walkways, bike paths, you know, kind of traffic calming solutions. But housing then was something that that people wanted to to have a town hall meeting about. So I, I reached out to the to the mayor probably about a about a month ago, and asked if she'd be willing to come and speak to to residents of District 11 about uh, about housing, both the opportunities that we're seeing in our district and also some of the uh, the challenges. District 11 is uh, several large uh, residential neighborhoods, uh, mainly single-family housing, that were mostly built around the 1950s. But it also District 11 also has. Uh, the, the Hilldale Shopping Mall and the apartments uh, in in that area, and what we've been seeing in the last uh, last couple of years is a lot of development uh, have, have occurred, a lot of building. Uh, I think something over 2,000 apartments are being built right now, and there's about 500 more that's being planned. And so that 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 kind of all that all development and this kind of high density right next to to large neighborhoods with just single-family housing uh, is just creating some, some both some opportunities and some anxieties. And invited the mayor to come and, and talk about, uh, you know, the kind of the vision that she has, uh, the vision that uh, the kind of direction that the city is moving uh, to talk about how, how we can uh, handle the increased number of uh, people who, who want to move to our city. Uh, now, uh, sort of, like you said, housing sort of uh, one of the biggest issues sort of facing the city of Madison right now. But you know, looking looking at the residents of District 11, there from from sort of what you heard, what are some of the uh, issues or concerns that are sort of facing the district right now uh, when it comes to housing? One of the things about District 11 is that the areas that have been zoned for uh, for high density housing were, were laid out uh, decades ago, um, and so we've been seeing a lot of development uh, in those those areas. I mean, where we held the the District 11 town hall was at the Sequoia Library and the Sequoia Commons, 
And that that just in the past couple of years has uh, changed from just a, a shopping mall to, um, to to being kind of a mixed-use environment where we have shops on the ground floor, library, and then both a combination of apartments as well as condominiums. Uh, Westgate is uh, another another area, again, a shopping mall, and now we're developing uh, apartments there next to the uh, the grocery store, the Hy-Vee. Um, and then... Uh, down closer to where where Hilldale is, uh, where there already were apartment buildings, um, there are now uh, not only the uh, Madison Yards is is going up, and uh, uh, so thousands, several thousand uh, apartments are going up there. So uh, I think neighbors are very uh, comfortable, or they 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 kind of ex, you know these are areas that were already zoned for this kind of housing, and so I think in in a large part, they're kind of welcoming this opportunity, but at you know the concerns are, as we built so much, not so much the housing, but but just the amount of traffic that might be coming in and out of these neighborhoods, and I think that's that's really where the concerns um, uh, started to be expressed. The other areas of, of concern are um, kind of stemming along with the uh, with with traffic. Uh, you know the the bus rapid transit will be going uh, right through District 11, going again going near the uh, areas where we have the uh, high density housing. Um, and there's there was discussion about you know uh, changing some of the zoning along the the bus uh, rapid transit, and especially in our uh, uh, in historic districts. Uh, and so. So last last night that topic came up, and uh, and city staff uh, assured the residents that uh, they are not recommending that there will be changes changing in the type of uh, uh, zoning and you know for the uh, historic district that uh, that cuts through um, in in the Hill Farms area. So I think that was very reassuring for people to hear. Um, but but at that same time, you know you know people are expecting. That there will be more development, um, you know, in, in other parts of, of of the district, and so um, I get a, I you know I get a mixture of you know people who uh, you know are, are apprehensive about the uh, the growth since there's been so much development, and it's been we're at a point right now where there's a lot of building, but people haven't actually moved moved in yet. So um, and so when we're just still in the midst of building. Um, and then to talk about even more building, I think that's kind of where some of the, the concerns are. Um, you know, and the mayor also addressed, um, you know, the, you know, um, as far as housing. Well, Bill, do you just have any uh, final thoughts on uh, last night's town hall or housing in your district that you'd like to uh, share with me here? Uh, I guess the only thoughts I have is, you know, as um, you know, we're seeing a lot of. of Development in apartments, and I think one thing that that uh, I think is uh, important is, you know, in addition to having a, uh, the option to, to live in apartments, and I think is also the ability to have um, ownership in your uh, in homes, and also condominiums. And so we're not seeing a lot of of, of uh, you know condominiums being uh, being built right now, especially in, in this district. Um, there haven't been a lot of uh, condominiums built in the last several years, so I think that's uh, that's you know one one area of concern. Um, you know, is that uh, 
uh, I think, you know, renting, I certainly have rented uh, apartments in the past, but I think there's also having, giving people the opportunity to, to have an investment in where, in their home also is a way to, to build up some, uh, some wealth. And uh, so I want I'm hoping that uh, as we continue to move forward with providing more housing opportunities, we're able to have a combination of, of both, uh, you know, single-family housing, apartments, as well as condominiums um, in our area. And is there anything that the city can sort of do to sort of help out with that in uh, encouraging more condominiums and uh, single-family homes to be built? Yeah, I, that's actually something I'm, I'm, I'm kind of learning about. And I think, I think having doing what we did to, uh, last night, I think, is, is one step in the right direction. Um, having a conversation about this, giving the opportunity for uh, residents to express to, to city staff what they'd like to see. Um, also, last night, uh, I've, you know, I've been, uh, you know, in communication and, and kind of, you know, talking with a lot of different uh, uh, land developers and uh, helping as they start to build new structures in the district. And so a number of them actually, uh, you know, I invited them to attend last night. And so, so they, were, they were there uh, in part- participating in the, the town hall. So I think doing more opportunities like that where people can kind of uh, communicate, uh, express ideas, um, and then, like I said, give, give people an op- you know, uh, different choices in housing. I think that's, you know, we all, uh, through different points in our life, you know, have different housing needs. And I think one of the, and as somebody who has lived in, uh, really in District 11 for off and on for almost uh, 54 years, I'm hoping that there will still be, you know, opportunities for me to, to stay in this neighborhood. Um, I think that's, that's really what I, I think is important to why we want to have different types of housing. So people can, if they find an area that they, they like to live uh, and they have established friends, they have uh, shops that they, they like to frequent, that, uh, you know, as there are different, different you know, phases in their lives, they still can find opportunities to either live in, live in the places where they uh, have lived in for a while or find new places to live that's still close to uh, uh, to friends and neighbors. I've been talking with District 11 Alder Bill Tischler about the town hall meeting last night uh, to talk about housing both in District 11 and around Madison as a whole. Bill, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Oh, thank you for having me. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop covers yesterday's protests on campus over a talk by self-proclaimed theocratic fascist Matt Walsh about his anti-transgender film. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. 
I'm producer Hope Carnup. We're bringing you special coverage of the campus community's response to an event at Memorial Union featuring Matt Walsh last night. We're still working on our coverage, so here's what the Cardinal has reported so far. Matt Walsh, a conservative commentator, spoke about his 2022 documentary, What is a Woman?, which critiques progressive viewpoints on gender and gender identity. The event was held in the Great Hall at Memorial Union and was hosted by the Wisconsin Young Americans for Freedom. Ahead of the event, the organization's chairperson, Harrison Wells, told the Cardinal that the talk would help to foster discussion about transgender rights and that Walsh offers an alternative viewpoint to the consensus among UW-Madison students. The event was sponsored by the National YAF Organization, with some funding from the Associated Students of Madison Grant Allocation Committee. According to a bylaw, ASM is required to provide funding for events hosted by registered student organizations that are in line with the organization's mission, open to all students, and educational. Members of ASM told the Cardinal that they were concerned that if the funding had been denied, ASM might appear to be against freedom of speech. ASM did not provide funding for a YAF event featuring Senator Ted Cruz last year, which was ultimately moved off campus over COVID-19 protocols. Ahead of the event, campus organizations began raising concerns that Walsh's rhetoric would harm the transgender community on campus. Lindsay Mahoney, the Outreach Coordinator for Promoting Awareness, Victim Empowerment, told the Cardinal, quote, Pave UW condemns all forms of bigotry, including transphobia. As such, we are appalled that right-wing conservative figure Matt Walsh will be given a platform at UW-Madison to spread his transphobic misinformation. Over the weekend, Dean of Students Christina Olstead and Associate Vice Chancellor Gabe Javier put out a statement saying that trans members of the UW-Madison community are seen and valued. We are aware that a speaker is coming to campus on Monday whose viewpoints we believe are harmful toward our trans community, the statement shared on UW-Madison's Instagram story read. On Monday morning, UW also responded to graffiti at Memorial Union and nearby Alumni Park, which has since been mostly cleaned up. Some of the spray-painted messages included, quote, stop letting Nazi transphobes talk, and quote, trans POC rights now. A Bucky statue near the terrace was also vandalized. University of Wisconsin Police Department spokesperson Mark Lovacott told the Cardinal that the incident is under investigation and that police are reviewing security cameras in the area. UW spokesperson John Lucas said the university is committed to free speech, but criminal damage to university buildings and spaces for any reason or purpose is unacceptable. The university will take appropriate steps under criminal statutes and campus policies to hold the individuals responsible for the graffiti accountable, Lucas said. At his talk, Walsh described the graffiti as, quote, free advertising. He also criticized the university's statement over the weekend and described the administration as, quote, disgraceful, self-devasing cowards, and you spineless, gutless clowns owe me an apology. Before Walsh spoke on Monday night, a crowd of about 300 people protested outside of Memorial Union and on Library Mall. Protesters began speaking out against Walsh and in support of transgender rights. Trans rights for human rights! Trans rights for human rights! 
Victoria Gutierrez, an organizer with March, said the protest was a strong showing to the university that it was unacceptable to give Walsh a platform for, quote, transphobic, hateful speech. Counter-protesters formed first along the sidewalk near Memorial Union and eventually moved across Langdon Street. Police first directed traffic as the two groups moved toward each other and later blocked traffic between Lake and Park Streets. The groups merged in front of an entrance to the Wisconsin Historical Society. UWPD officers ultimately led a small group of counter-protesters across Library Mall. Jason Storms, a pastor from Milwaukee who came to counter the demonstrations, told the Cardinal that they were asked to leave the center of the protests. Elsewhere on Monday, the UW-Madison Gender and Sexuality Campus Center also put on a day-long community-building event and trans film festival on Monday, which included Happy Birthday Marsha and Tangerine. The Cardinal published a full Q&A with the GSCC about their 30th birthday and their response to the Matt Walsh event. The goal of the event was to, quote, provide space for folks to gather and be in community to cultivate a sense of belonging to be affirmed, the GSCC director said. In other campus news, the outreach team, a consulting firm for campaigns, falsely registered UW-Madison students to vote by using WIS cards as a proof of residence, according to the city clerk's office. Clerk Maggie McLean said the office is continuing outreach with their election officials and Badger's Vote interns and is prepared to follow up with any voters whose forms lack proper proof of address documents. WIS cards are not eligible forms of ID, though the WIS card office at Union South issues free voter IDs for students. All students also have a valid proof of address available in their MyUW online student center. The outreach team did not respond to a request for comment. The campus-wide initiative Badger's Vote, which mobilizes student registration and turnout efforts, said they are not affiliated with the outreach team. Explicit photos and video of UW-Madison's 2021 volleyball team following their Big Ten championship win were leaked online last week. In a statement, the athletic department said the quote, unauthorized sharing is a significant and wrongful invasion of the student-athlete's privacy. The UWPD is involved in investigating multiple crimes related to the release of the content without consent, but is not planning to investigate the student-athletes for the incident. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Our full coverage is available at dailycardinal.com and check our social media for updates. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
One of the hardest decisions animal rehabilitators have to make is what to do with a rescue that won't survive in the wild. Unfortunately, that usually means that the animal will need to be humanely euthanized. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg walks us through the difficult decisions she sometimes has to make. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I'd like to talk about the placement of animals. And it's a really tough subject, but we get questions about this all the time as rehabilitators. We have a very hard decision to make between ourselves and our veterinarians about what to do with an animal that maybe can't go back into the wild or they can't be released. And it's such a difficult ethical decision to make that we really look to other people in the field, other experts about like, you know, what are good candidates for placement? And, you know, we want that animal to be happy in the rest of its life. And by happy, meaning, you know, it doesn't have to be content. It's never going to truly be content in an educational facility, but more, you know, is it going to have a good quality of life in that facility? And it really depends on the facility too. So as rehabilitators, we put our trust in guidelines from places like the AZA, uh, so accredited zoos. Uh, Sometimes it's through U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who does have certain guidelines for us to follow but we also have to go on our own euthanasia codes of conduct with our veterinarians and what they know about for example things like long-lasting pain in captivity and you know what are the capabilities of the people that are treating them euthanasia is the hardest decision that we ever have to make as rehabilitators and while we would prefer not to sometimes it makes the most sense for that animal if especially they're going to suffer And so I thought I would share just some of our kind of mission statements, our guidelines, and then what other places say about placing an animal into education or display or maybe into a sanctuary because the decision's not easy and it's not taken lightly. And for any rehabilitator, it's just very sad to see that happen. But we certainly try our best. In some cases, you know, it might be four or five animals a year we might place in a facility and we wanna make sure that it has a very high quality facility and that it's gonna be really great for that animal. So for us, you know, our mission is to rehabilitate patients, return them back to the wild as quickly as we can. But before they're released, they have to be both physically and mentally sound to function in the wild. And so for us, we're giving our best to provide like the utmost perfect care or best care possible for those animals. And sometimes, even though we try that, we occasionally never really see that animal regain that full function. So we might try, it might take us a long time, might be months, but you know, if it's not able to care for itself or find food, you know, at best it faces a very uncertain future out in the wild, but it could also lead to starvation or predation. And so there are some examples of birds or animals that we would just we would not be able to release, you know, animals that have permanent vision loss or impairment. So just as an example, we do have a bald eagle that is in our care right now. And that bald eagle has been brought to us with permanent vision loss in one eye. And so, you know, this is our, our effort is to say, okay, veterinarians taking a really good look at this. What do you think of this case? How old is that animal, that bird? This is an adult eagle. They are specially protected through the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and then the additional Golden and Bald Eagle Act. So it's a decision that's made by a veterinarian, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. You know, Native American tribes also have a say in where like eagles are going or there's a repository for their feathers. So all of that has to also be included in some of those decisions. 
Also animals with old injuries that just can't be repaired. This week we had a turkey vulture that was admitted with a really bad shoulder luxation, which means that it was dislocated and it was set in the wrong place that it, there's no way to re-break that joint and put it back together correctly. So, you know, another tough one that we, you know, you have to decide, are, is that a patient that you're going to be able to rehab or is it something that we might have to place or elect euthanasia for? wing injuries that would prevent any kind of proper flight, especially for animals like excipiters. When I think of something like a Cooper's hawk or a sharp-shinned hawk, ones that really need perfect flight to be able to maneuver between trees and do their normal thing, which is to be really fast birds. Also injuries that would prevent an animal from foraging or hunting normally in the wild. So I think of an animal that might be missing an entire foot, you know, like a, you know, an animal that digs like a badger, if they were missing their entire paw, well, how would they be able to hunt or forage very well or dig into a den? And then of course, we've talked about in other segments, tameness or imprinting, if they don't know their own species, then, you know, obviously they're not going to be successful in the wild, you know, contributing to their species and having babies and everything that really kind of comes along with preserving that animal in, in a conservation perspective. So unfortunately, you know, animals that are unfit for return to the wild, sometimes, like I said, they can, they can be placed for uh, education or display, but you know, common animals are very difficult to place in captive situations. Sometimes we can find placement, but there's always so the suitability of finding a good match. And we really want to put that animal first. So the International Wildlife Rehab Council has some really great guidelines for animal placement on their website. If you're ever interested in seeing, you know, what they say, uh, that's at the IWRC.org. So it's pretty neat. It talks about the different types of placement. It's not a substitute for euthanasia. And a lot of animals are not suitable candidates because of something that would cause problems with their stress or in their words, equilibrium or behavioral issue. If they're going to be stressed every single day of the rest of their life, that's probably not going to be a great animal to be placing into a sanctuary or a zoo. And so there has to be an evaluation. And that's something that we really hope that there, you know, there are folks out there that are trained in animal behavior to evaluate these these patients. I know that there are programs throughout the United States, like the Partners for Wildlife that have done those assessments before. But the evaluation is really that, you know, do you have the state and federal permits? Are the facilities satisfactory for their housing? And do they have resources that are sufficient for food, housing, medical treatment, and anything that is also necessary for that animal? You know, is it high quality diet? Do they have enough of it? Do they have experienced volunteers or staff that can handle and train those animals? And are the animals that good candidate for that life in captivity? You know, from what we know, certain things like, uh, if I think of owls, for example, they've found that owls that are not born into captivity that are past their first year or so really don't make good education birds. They're stressed for their entire lifetime. You might not be able to see it, but it does happen. You know, sometimes falconers will take a bird for their first year and then release it back out. They found that that still somehow is successful and that bird is able to live a normal life without having any issue of being in captivity for a year. But, you know, that takes a licensed falconer and a lot of training and you have to make sure that the care standards are in existence and that personal standards are still met by that person or that falconer or license holder. So definitely take a look at some of those guidelines if you're ever interested. But really for, for us at Dane County Humane Society and our Wildlife Center, you know, we, we really want to rehabilitate and release native Wisconsin wildlife that you know, we're able to treat successfully and be able to put back out into the environment. 
And there's some just really great information that we have on our website and that we teach with our volunteers. And really for us, you know, we go off of the statement of John Huckabee, a veterinarian that wrote for the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association. And he says, it is not easy to make the decision to euthanize any animal, but a wild animal should not be allowed to experience unnecessary or prolonged suffering for reasons of emotional attachment. These are wild animals, not domestic or companion animals, and must not be treated as pets. Simply, when an animal is taken from the wild, any degree of confinement and proximity to humans will be quite stressful, no matter what species is being considered. If it cannot be returned to the wild, we have an obligation to the animal, and the animal has a right to humane euthanasia. Quality of life is an ethical and moral issue that must be approached by an individual on an individual basis. It is just one of a myriad of considerations which must be made when determining whether to pursue treatment and rehabilitation or to opt for euthanasia. It's critical to remember that when making decisions about an animal's life, that these are wild animals that are physically and mentally oriented for life in the wild, not in captivity. The decision to euthanize or to pursue treatment must be effective, objective, and well-informed without being clouded by emotion or personal prejudice. So what is in the best interest of the particular animal? And that's really what we use when we're thinking about fulfilling our mission to rescue, rehabilitate, release native wildlife. And then, you know, that quality of life is just really important for us to assess whether that animal is going to be put into placement. It's a very difficult decision. We make it with team input and base it on current research. That is what I have for today. And I wanna thank you again for listening here on WORT, talking about quality of life for patients that might be non-releasable. What are some of the thoughts that we have going through our minds when we're thinking of placement opportunities? And definitely do some of your own research because there's a lot out there about wildlife placement in zoos and what we know about certain animals or certain species. So something that we're thinking about every day as rehabilitators, but hoping obviously for the best that we're able to release those animals rather than place them. So thanks for listening. This has been our segment here, uh, Wildlife Weekly. And if you ever have any questions about wildlife or you see any sick, injured, or orphaned animals, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening on Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. What happens when we look into space and find something so bizarre that it defies our general understanding of the universe? Well, thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope, scientists have found just that. No, it's not proof of alien life, but radio astronomy host Daniel Ribarczyk ponders this cosmic mystery. Welcome to Radio Astronomy, I'm Dan Robarczyk. In science, we try to understand the universe we live in by a careful and skeptical investigation of evidence. Sometimes we find something so extraordinary that it doesn't seem to fit within our understanding of how the universe works. Then it's even more important to carefully scrutinize all available evidence and withhold any conclusions that are tempting but unsubstantiated. This is especially true in astronomy, where we study parts of the universe that we have no regular experience with, objects and phenomena beyond anything that we can really imagine. Last week, astronomers presented a puzzling new image that led to wild speculation. But as astronomers soon discovered, 
Sometimes reality is even stranger than fiction. This image, taken by the James Webb Space Telescope, shows a dazzling array of concentric rings around a star. These rings were so uniformly spaced and beautifully symmetrical that some people, not astronomers, suggested that they might have been produced by an alien intelligence. But these claims were quickly and thoroughly discredited by astronomers. As it turns out, nature can generate patterns so uniform and regular, and to many eyes, beautiful, that we interpret them as products of intelligence. And this very special system had the perfect configuration to produce such lovely patterns. Before the new images taken by the James Webb Space Telescope were released and the system of concentric rings was identified, astronomers had previously studied this system. The star at the center of the ring is known as WR140, a Wolf-Rayet star. Wolf-Rayet stars are very massive stars with some peculiar features. One important feature is that they have strong stellar winds. That is, they eject material outwards into space, traveling extremely fast, about 1% the speed of light. This material includes dust, which the James Webb Space Telescope is excellent at detecting. What's special about the WR140 system that helps illuminate the new Webb discovery is that it's part of a binary system. That is, WR140 orbits around another star in a cosmic dance. Its partner, though not a Wolf-Rayet star, is also very massive and has strong stellar winds. This configuration is very rare, and it has some dazzling effects. Instead of the winds from these stars just traveling outwards in a hazy plume, the combined effect of their stellar winds means that dust forms where their two winds collide. This shock front is where we see lots of dust. And because the stars orbit each other at a regular interval, the shock front traces out a very regular symmetrical spiral pattern that moves outward, being driven away from the stars over time. This is what produces the beautiful pattern of concentric spirals that was detected by the James Webb Space Telescope. By characterizing the physical environment of the system, taking into account how dust is formed and ejected from WR140 and its companion, and how these stars orbit each other in three dimensions, astronomers at the University of Sydney in Australia were able to almost perfectly match the observations. I say almost because initially there was one wrinkle. The outward motion of these spirals away from the stars seemed to be too slow in their model. But the astronomers realized that they could actually resolve this problem if they took into account so-called radiation pressure. That's the pressure that the light from these stars exerts on matter. Ordinarily, this effect is small enough to be ignored. But in the WR140 system, the radiation pressure is so strong that it actually has a significant effect on the system. When accounting for this effect, the remaining discrepancy between the observations and the model was resolved. Clearly, the James Webb Space Telescope is starting to show us some really cool things about the universe. But it's also reminding us of the importance to rigorously test our theories before making conclusions. We won't be led astray by fallacious thinking, and we might even discover something wonderful about how the universe works. 
That's all for Radio Astronomy. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight this evening was Abigail Levins. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and Hope Carnop and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wagehout produces newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and follow it wherever you find audio. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patio. Good night.